will be in 1 Peter chapter, beginning in chapter 3, verse 18, through chapter 4, verse 6. Peter is writing to people in what is principally today modern-day Turkey, uh, but it's the city of Pontus, the uh, provinces of, of Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. He's, he has ministered to these people. He is writing to them. The congregations in those places are a combination of people from a Jewish background who have come to faith in Christ, a Gentile background who have come to faith in Jesus Christ. They are standing up for Jesus. They have been raised from the dead by Jesus. And a person coming to faith in Christ is as much a resurrection as when Lazarus was called out of the tomb. It is an act of the aggressive God calling us. James chapter 1, and I keep citing this verse. I hope you're hearing it. (laughs) You know, repetition is the price of learning. I, I, I heard that when I was a little kid. About the 10th or 12th time you hear something, oh, I mean, honestly, I can remember saying stuff to my own children, and about the 12th time, well, you've never said that to me before. (laughs) Okay, did you get it this time? Oh, yeah. Okay, well, mission accomplished. There's a lot of repetition in the Bible because we need it. And our God is the God of all authority. He moves into hostile environments and turns them upside down for his praise, for his glory. Peter is writing to people who are living in a hostile environment. They're literally, it is hostile on the spiritual level because they are surrounded by paganism, which is an animation. It is an outlet for Satan and all of those fallen angels. A third of the angels, the angelic creation, joined Lucifer in his rebellion. We don't know how many that is, except that in the book of Revelation, speaking of the unfallen angels, John says in Revelation chapter 7, I couldn't even see, they were so stretched out, and he's standing in heaven at the throne of God, and he can't see the end of the crowd. 33 million Hindu gods and goddesses, which are fallen just in India. That's a lot. But Jesus has all authority over them. That is why the gospel, even right now, in India, the persecution is ramping up against the Christians in India because they are a threat to those fallen angels and to the people who have in the upper castes that aren't getting the worship from these Christians that they were used to getting from the lower caste Indians. You're supposed to be highly regarded. You are, I mean, especially if you're a Brahmin, you're a god. And so they're upset by not being worshipped. Well, that's the same kind of turmoil that was being experienced by these people in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, and throughout the Mediterranean Roman world. 
Andrew is going to go up to Kiev, what is modern Kiev, Russia. He's going to carry the gospel up there and influence that whole region and be crucified. Thomas is going to take the gospel to India and be speared to death, but he's going to take the gospel. So that 1,400 years later, when the Portuguese finally got around the Horn of Africa and made it up to India, we're going to bring Christianity to these people. One of the first groups of people they met were the members of the Martoma Church, the Witness of Thomas Church. And that's when they found out that Thomas the Apostle had carried the gospel to India and been speared to death, but established the gospel presence there. We are also in a hostile environment. Now, the hostility that we experience here in the United States is not as often the physical persecution and response of actual beatings, torture, imprisonment that is experienced by other people, but the opposition from the culture is certainly increasing. And so Peter is writing to us, take heart, take heart, take heart, because what did... Peter was standing there when Jesus said those words that we quoted earlier from Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10, let me just read one verse, verse 32. This pertains to the passage we're going to be looking at. Whoever confesses me, Jesus speaking, whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me, now he's speaking to the apostles and other disciples. He's not talking to the general crowd. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father is in heaven. If you take a stand for me down here, I'll take a stand for you up there. Does that sound good? Do we want Jesus standing before the throne of his Father, speaking on our behalf, unleashing every heaven, one of heaven's resources on our behalf? Do we want that? I will say so. We want heaven's resources being made fully available. But Jesus says, if you fold your hands for me down here, I'll fold my hands for you up there. Uh, wait a minute, Jesus. Mm, that doesn't sound like it will work out well for me. I think I will keep speaking down here in this hostile environment, and Jesus is sending these men out into a hostile environment. They persecuted me, they will persecute you, said the Jesus who would be crucified. They persecuted me, they will persecute you, but I will be with you. And in the same way that I was yanked out of my grave, you'll be yanked out of your grave and welcomed into kingdom glory. If you take a stand for me down here, I'll take a stand for you up there. If you close your mouth for me, disciples, if you close your mouth down here, I'll close my mouth up there. No, I think I'll keep speaking for Jesus because then heaven's resources will be poured out on my behalf. 
Peter picks up with that concept. He's been speaking about how we are to walk in this hostile, fallen world, this environment. And he says this, beginning in chapter 3, verse 18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. Or I will give you a little, in his own spirit. I'm going to justify that in a minute by whom or which also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly were disobedient when the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight souls, were saved through water. There is also an antitype, an answering experience, which now saves us, baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind, for he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he should no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the loss of men, but for the will of God. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles. When we walked in lewdness, lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries, in regard to these, they think it strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation speaking evil of you, they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason, the gospel is preached to those, preached also to those who are dead, that they may be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. Going back to chapter 3, verse 18, as Christ also suffered once for, this, for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Now, he's talking about the previous context. He's talking about the difficult environment that we find ourselves in. But he uses this illustration from Noah. Now, he talks about speaking to the spirits that were in rebellion, that Noah spoke to, when did Jesus do this? Well, there are a couple alternative views. I'm going to give you the first, the one that I think is incorrect. And that is the idea that when Jesus was crucified and his body placed in the tomb, we do know that he went to paradise. His spirit went to paradise. He had said to the man crucified beside him who said to Jesus, will you remember me? When you come into your kingdom, and Jesus said, you will be with me this day in paradise. So that man, in his spirit, was with Jesus' spirit in paradise. Now, we have this wonderful, <coughs> thank you, Lord Jesus, statement previously from Jesus where he talks about as an actual event. It's not a made-up story. 
he talks about a man by the name of Lazarus. Not the Lazarus whom he raised from the dead in John 11. Another man named Lazarus who was a beggar. And that beggar, Lazarus, was out on the street begging incessantly in front of the door of a wealthy man. Lazarus the beggar died. Lazarus the beggar was an authentic follower of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That beggar, Lazarus, found himself in paradise in the embrace of Abraham. And in fact, a term, another term for paradise was Abraham's bosom. He found himself in Abraham's embrace, in Abraham's bosom. He was in paradise. And the rich man also died. And the rich man went to torments. And he was in torments. And he could see over into paradise, into Abraham's bosom. He sees Lazarus, that fellow who had been begging in front of his door for years, in the embrace of Abraham. And he says, Abraham, Abraham, send Lazarus over here so that he can put a drop of water on my tongue. Abraham replied, I couldn't do it. I wouldn't do it if I could. But in fact, I can't because there is a great gulf fixed between us which we cannot bridge. One of the ideas with this 1 Peter passage is that when Jesus went to paradise following his being placed in the tomb, his spirit went to paradise. He's accompanied by the spirit of the man crucified beside him. He said that he stood in paradise and actually announced to those over in torments his great victory that they will not benefit from. That's one view. I don't think that's right. I don't think that's what Peter's talking about. Instead, there's this view, that the Spirit of Christ was resident in Noah before the flood. Now, why do I go with that? Because earlier in chapter 1, Peter has spoken of the Old Testament prophets who, when they were penning inspired Scripture, specifically related to Jesus and his suffering, that it was the Spirit of Christ Distinct from God the Holy Spirit, it was the Spirit of Christ that was resident in them, speaking of Jesus' future torments and resurrection and glorification. That it was the Spirit of Christ resident within them. And so I'm simply taking that where that Paul Peter is very, very clear about in chapter 1, and moving it to chapter 3 and saying, in the same way, the Spirit of Christ was resident in Noah while the ark was being built for 120 years. And for 120 years, Noah is speaking to the people. And here they're building an ark because it's going to do something it's never done before. It's going to rain. It didn't, you know, it never rained before the flood. It never rained. The ground was watered with artesian wells. And so when he's talking about water is going to fall from the sky, the people are like, are you crazy? What are you talking about? Well, I'm, I'm going to make up this word Noah says called rain. <laughs> That's my, I don't think he said that. I don't know what he said. But 
that the, we're told in the book of Genesis, the ground was actually watered by artesian wells, water that came up from below the surface. <clears throat> and there was a massive amount of water above the atmosphere. It was an ocean of water above the atmosphere, which, by the way, this is all for free, <clears throat> created a huge air pressure in on the earth, which would have made living on the earth at that time uh, like living in a hyperbaric chamber. You know what a hyperbaric chamber? That is a chamber you get put in where the pressure, air pressure is magnified and intensified, and people who are, for example, uh, scuba diving and they get the bends, they, get, they, don't, they need oxygen, they put them in there to save their lives because it hyperoxygenates them. What that would have meant was, like, you would have been living in a hyperbaric chamber, which meant all infections, and it also eliminates infections. You would have had no cancer, no infections, plus that ocean of water above the atmosphere would have created a shield. You know what the number one cause of aging is? This is weird. Number one cause of aging is we are constantly being shot through with radiation from outer space. And uh, when you get as old as me, this is nobody else in this room, when you, you start seeing your skin start to not be able to keep up and you get these thing called wrinkles, well, guess what? That's also happening to your internal organs. And that it... Well, what if you took that number one cause of aging away and that ocean of water above the atmosphere completely shielded the earth from the number one cause of aging, which is why those people lived hundreds of years because the number one thing causing their organs to fail was not present. It caused our organs to fail was not present. That's, that was all for free, okay? It was just... But here, what's happening? Noah is speaking to the people. A 120-year project building this ark because God is going to flood the earth and cleanse the earth. Can we call this the first baptism? <laughs> God's going to cleanse the earth of the wicked. You can believe. You can, you can believe me and step into the ark. The ark was a very picture of Jesus himself, we are telling people, when we explain the gospel to them, we're telling them there is a place of safety, of deliverance from judgment that you can step into. All you have to do is believe enough to walk up the plank. And the Spirit of Christ was resident in Noah speaking to the people. And what, what was their response, do you suppose, to Noah, who's telling them it's going to do something they've never experienced in their life? It's going to rain. It's going to flood. You're all going to be wiped out. They're mocking him, mocking him, mocking him, mocking him. And the, very, the biggest cause of the mockery is the building of this ark, which became the very means by which he and his three sons and his wife and their three wives are delivered. The cause of their mockery became the means of their deliverance. Jesus is the cause of our mockery, but he is also the means of our deliverance. And so, then Peter says, in the same way, <clears throat> baptism now saves you. Oh, 
not the washing away of the filth of the flesh, not the part of the baptism ritual where you're actually getting water applied to you, poured on you, dunked in it, sprinkled it, whatever. By the way, there were several different Levitical type, type of cleansing rituals. But the answer of a good conscience toward God. What's that? Well, one of the great things, smart things that they did in the first century when people... Let's say you go into this, the city of Pontus, as Peter had. Pontus was this city right up on the Black Sea, and uh, you went up to that city and he explained the gospel to people what some of those Gentiles believed. Smart thing to do. You know what they didn't do? They didn't sneak off into a building and do baptism just in front of Christians. Instead, what they did was they'd go into the town square where there's a, a pool, <laughs> or a water supply, a well, and they would, in front of all their old friends in sin, the person would, who's about to be baptized, they would say, well, Randall, left to yourself, what is uh, the possibility of you being welcomed with God? Answer, zero. Okay, so you don't have any capacity in you to live a life that the holy God will welcome. You got that right. Boy, I've already blown it as far as it can be blown. It's already too late. Okay. Did you know there is this fellow named Jesus of Nazareth who is God the Son become flesh who paid not only did he live that perfect life, not only did he display his perfection, even that professional fault finder, Pilate, Pontius Pilate, said, I find no fault in this man. And then he, in fulfillment of what John the Baptist said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the Lamb of God who is Jesus was nailed to a cross, nailed to a wooden altar, and there he was judged that perfect Lamb of God was judged for our sins, not his own. He is the sacrifice. He is our substitute who paid sin's penalty for us. Did you know? Yes, I just heard that. In fact, I, you need to know, baptizer, just a couple days ago, I welcomed that gift of God. And I received the forgiveness of my sins because I stood before the holy God and I said, I see that you sent your son to pay sin's penalty for me. May I please have the benefit? And you said, as you always do, you said to me, yes, you may. And not only did you forgive my sins, you actually attached to my account your son's righteousness. I stand before you, Holy Father, as if I had lived your son's perfect life. What an outrageous gift that is. I stand just before the Holy God. Really, what in the world gives you such confidence that what Jesus did on the cross had that kind of a benefit, that that was a, a, a sacrifice acceptable to God. Answer, my answer, because Jesus of Nazareth was raised from the dead. That is God's proof of the 
reality of his son's declarations about himself. How many times did Jesus say to the apostles, the Son of Man is going to be taken, given an unjust trial, be crucified, and on the third day rise from the dead. He said it over and over, and, and the apostles, what was their uniform? No, we don't want to hear that. <laughs> well, it's a good thing he did it, or we would have no welcome in heaven. But now, what is the proof to me that Jesus' work on the cross was effective to create a welcome for me with God? The resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And what does Peter say? Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring, bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in, now I'm going to, my new King James says, in the spirit as if it's the Holy Spirit. No, in his spirit by which, his own spirit, also he went and preached to the spirits who are now in prison. When he was speaking through Noah, he was speaking to these people who now are in prison, who formerly were disobedient when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight souls were saved through water. The very cause of their rejection and mockery at the hands of their, the people around them became the means of their deliverance. There is also an antitype, an answering experience which now saves us. Baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, not the part involving the water, but the part involving where you're being quizzed by the baptizer. Question, answer, question, answer, question, answer. By the way, the word translated answer here is the word used in a legal deposition in the Roman court system. Because when people were baptized in Peter's day, it was question, answer, question, answer. The answer, how do you know that you've been cleansed? My Savior has been raised from the dead. There is also an antitype which now saves us. Baptism, not the part involving the water, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. How do I know my conscience is authentically cleansed? Because of the resurrection of Christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. Do we live in a hostile environment? Yes, we do. But who's in charge? Jesus is in charge. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind, the same expectation. Oh, no, no, no. Lord Jesus. I don't want to suffer. I don't want to suffer. You will be joining me in my sufferings. And oh, by the way, that will step you into enhanced kingdom glory. Oh. Hmm. That might work. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind, for he who suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. If you're walking with God, you're not sinning. You can't be doing both. He who has suffered in the flesh, who is so identified with Christ that he has actually experienced Christ's rejection, you're doing the right thing. 
that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh in his earthly walk for the lust of men, but for the will of God. We have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drunk drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. So here's a list. Don't do that. Don't do that. In regard to these, they, your old pals in sin, before whom you're being baptized, before whom you are taking this public stand for Christ, what are they going to do? Oh, that guy, Ed, what a, oh, he used to be so much fun to hang around. Now he's going to be this guy that isn't going to accompany us. And they're all going to get that, and they're not going to be expecting Ed to join them. That's actually a gigantic benefit to Ed. He doesn't have to go to them one at a time. He's getting it all done at once. <laughs> And that's a huge benefit. I'm taking, what did Jesus say? If you confess me before men, I will confess you before my Father. Not only will you be making a statement to them, you'll be making a statement to Jesus. And he, all heaven's resources suddenly get poured out into your life experience. In regard to all these things that I've listed, they think it's strange that you do not run with them in this flame, same flood of dis, dissipation, and they will mock you. They will speak evil of you. They, oops, for them, they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason, the gospel was preached to those who are dead we walk amongst the dead. We walk amongst the dead. For this reason, the gospel is preached to the, also to those who are dead, that they may be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. When we share the gospel with someone we're speaking who does not know Christ, we're speaking to dead people. Who some of whom will be raised, some of whom will hear, understand, and allow themselves to be embraced by the mercy and grace of God. For this reason the gospel was preached also to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh when they stand before God, having not believed they will be judged, but live according to God and the Spirit. There's also the possibility that embracing the gospel, allowing themselves to be embraced by God's mercy, they will live. They will live before him. They will have been born, as Jesus says to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, they will have been born, received life from above.